morning. You know, as we were singing that song the second time, I was thinking about that line uh, where, where there was death, you brought life. And I was thinking about life in all of its forms. Sometimes we think of just like dead things coming to life. But how many of you have had this experience where someone that you just love is coming to visit and when they walk in the room, you just feel like your spirit lifted, like you're coming to life? You ever had that experience before? Well, uh, Joel mentioned it, but a couple Wednesdays ago, I feel like as a church community, we have that experience. It's called Roll and Glow. How many of you have participated in Roll and Glow? Let me tell you the basics of it, so if you're not there, you just like get a visual. Basically, uh, it's in our back parking lot. We turn the place into a neon roller skating rink. We invite kids to dress up, and we just go out there and have a blast. There's limbo, there's dancing, there's rollerblading, roller skating, scootering, everything. And man, I have never been in a place where so much joy and laughter is all in one place. And I was thinking, what better place to preach from? than just joy and laughter. And so I wanted to give you just a small couple minute glimpse of what Roll and Glow is all about, just as a highlight and a celebration. And um, we're gonna watch that video together and then we'll jump into God's word this morning. Joyful. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Today, today. Said I woke up to the summer shining through. Calling on my friends, asking what's the move. Feeling a little different, I'm on something new. Today, today. I ain't gonna let no clouds get in my way. The only road I'm walking is the one I picked. Catch me sitting in the sun, no time for shade. Today, today. This is the day that the Lord has made. And I ain't gonna let it slip away. I'm gonna be joyful. Yes, I am. Yes, I am. I'm gonna be joyful. Today, I'm gonna be joyful. Ooh, I'm gonna be, I'm gonna, gonna be joyful. I got the feeling that you get when you get new kicks. Bell ringing on the last day of singing, yeah. High fiving everybody, but we out of here. Today, today. So fast, life comes and goes. Make it last, best slow your road. They don't take it as a choice, but you gotta know that today's the day. This is the day that the Lord has made. And I ain't gonna let it slip away, nah. I'm gonna be joyful. Gonna be, I'm gonna be joyful. Today, I'm gonna be joyful. Yes, I am, yes, I am. I'm gonna be joyful. Today, today. I got the joy dropped down to my heart. Down to my down to my I got the joy, joy down to my heart, down to my down to my I got the J O Y down to my heart, down to my heart, down to my I got the joy, joy down It's hard to watch something like that and not smile, isn't it? Awesome. Well, I think we're going to um, put the shades up and we're going to make this place a place of joy in life. How many of you are excited to jump into God's word this morning? I'm glad that you feel that way. You know, when I first became a Christian, I, I thought that there was like this stodgy, very like, um, like rules-based thing around God's word that everyone was like fun and happy, and then God's word would open, and it was very much like 
I don't know what the rules are. The rules are that you are free to laugh, to enjoy, to be curious, to take notes. Whatever it is for you, God is inviting you into hearing his word and being changed by it. So I'm excited to bring it to you this morning. Uh, if you recall, we're in a, a series. We're going through the entire Gospel of John. We have no clue how long that will take. I was once guilty of doing this with Matthew and saying we would be done in six months, and then almost a year and a half later, we finally concluded. So buckle up. It might be a while. But this morning, we're going to be in uh, John chapter 5. But before we d uh, get there, I want to uh, leave you with something that maybe you could take with you and take it home. A couple weeks ago, uh, not one, not two, but three people came up to me on a Wednesday and they said something to me that as a former youth pastor, I never thought I would hear somebody say. They said, we love it when you give us homework. So I was thinking, uh, I want to send you out with some homework, if you will, because I, I think there's something going on in the Gospel of John that's kind of like 10,000 foot level. And sometimes when we go verse by verse, it's, it's got so much fruit in there for us, but it makes it difficult to step back and see the whole thing as a, a bigger picture. Does that make sense? So I want to uh, show you a theme that's emerging in the Gospel of John, and then I want to encourage you to, if you will, write it down and take it home. Go do some study, go do some digging. But I made a slide for it, and here it is. It's that there is a theme emerging of water in the Gospel of John. We are going to be in chapter 5, which is why that's uh, in bold today, but check this out. The baptism of Jesus in water, chapter 1. Water turned into wine, the first miracle of Jesus, chapter 2. This teaching that Jesus says that you must be born of water and spirit, chapter 3. The woman at the well looking for the living water that never runs dry, chapter 4. Today we're going to be talking about the healing that occurs at a pool of water. And then in the very next chapter, Jesus walks on... No, just kidding. It's not water. He walks on land. That was a trick. No, he does walk on water. Yeah, you're good. So uh, we don't have time to jump into this, but I want to encourage you. There's something really cool going on here. I think I might know a little inkling of it. I think some of you ha would have a lot to teach me if you spent some time. I'd be really uh, curious to see what God reveals to you as you seek that out if you'd like to do that. Well, for the sake of time, who's ready for John chapter 5? Okay. Okay, John chapter 5. It's one of these uh, chapters, I think, that I already had like a pre-built-in idea of what this means, what it's all about. And as I sat in it, I began to scratch my head and think, interesting, I'm beginning to see parts of the character of Jesus that maybe I've tried to uh, shove aside or underestimate a little bit. And I'm, I'm excited to, to jump in and share that with you. So let's start at uh, verse uh, 1 in chapter 5. If you have your Bible, I'd encourage you to use the real printed version. If not, we have it on the screen. After this, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. A couple things as we get started. John, if you've read through the gospel before, is the guy who gives you tons of details. Did you know that? And so when he says that they're just going up for one of these Jewish festivals and he chooses not to tell you which one, it should make us pause and say, why doesn't he want us to know? I think the reason he wants us to know is that he is building a case for Jesus being a guy who doesn't care which festival it is because he is willing to confront the center of power no matter what the occasion is. Let me uh, say it a different way. If you were a teacher, say you were like Jesus, how many of you would agree that it would be much easier to maybe confront a, a local synagogue leader way out in the boonies? How many of you would know that's true? 
How many of you know it would be much more difficult to march right into the Vatican and say, I need a word with the Pope? Yeah. This is what's going on here. And John wants you to know that Jesus, he has the truth of God. He's living out the, the second person of the Trinity. That's who he is. And it doesn't matter if it's somebody in the countryside or if that's the seat of power in Jerusalem. Jesus will go there. He will say what is true. He will do what is true. How many of you remember Jesus flipping over the tables in the temple? John wants you to know right from the start, Jesus is not afraid. He's willing to do it, even if it makes us uncomfortable as we read. He is not afraid. The second point I want you to know is this, and uh, any of you who have kids or were a kid, you all know this. How many of you recognize that there are certain occasions where everybody is supposed to be on their P's and Q's? Where you're like, oh, you got the kids dressed up and you just start praying so hard on your knees, God, I pray that they don't act out their true personalities just this one time in front of grandma. Do you know what I'm talking about? And what happens when your kid acts out a little bit? You are quick to do what? I hope, uh, not back yet. don't hit your children. <laughs> but you want to correct really quickly, why? Because there's these certain instances in our lives where we really want everyone to be on their best behavior. This is what it's like to go to Jerusalem for a festival. It's exciting, there's camaraderie, there's family, there's laughter along the way, but when you get there, the people you are going to encounter, these are like the big wigs of Judaism, these are the experts, these are the, the big time priests, and you don't want your kid to embarrass you. Does that make sense? Now there's a flip side to this, because if you are a priest, for instance, in Jerusalem, and you're working all day, every day on your shift as a priest in Jerusalem, there are rules and there are regulations, there are rituals, there are, are laws that you follow. But during a festival, when hundreds of thousands of people come, what does this opportunity present to you? This is my time to prove that I am capable of doing the next job. Maybe I'll get a promotion. Maybe I'll be seen as a big deal. Maybe my commentary will be published by a major publishing company. You see how this works, it works both ways. And so we're gonna run into both of these happen things happening at once. Let's jump into chapter two so we can flesh it out. I'm sorry, verse two. Now there is in Jerusalem by the sheep gate a pool. In Aramaic, it's called Bethesda, and it has five, uh, which has five roofed colonnades. In these lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. Let's just stop here for a moment. This is the, the scene that's being painted. There is a place here, and it is a place where people of all different conditions, devastating sicknesses and illnesses, all sorts of conditions that are trending towards hopelessness, they're all gathered in one place. Now, I want to um, set the stage for you and tell you a little background that I think is really cool. So this idea of a sheep gate, anyone want to guess what comes through a sheep gate? Oh, dang, smart crew. Okay, here's the idea. Just uh, picture Jerusalem. It's kind of a fortified city in some ways. Outside the city, the sheep just roam free. They graze. But Jews need sheep. And what do they need them for? Sacrifice. That's right. They need them for sacrifice. And so they can be brought in through the sheep gate. And there's a pool there, which is very convenient because to present a sacrifice, you need a pure and spotless lamb or sheep. And so you could wash them in the pool. This is that pool. It's where the sheep were brought in. It's a convenient pool because uh, uh, archaeologists have now told us that this is a place where it's a, a natural hot spring that bubbles up. That's what's going on here. So these people are gathered around here. 
Bethesda in Aramaic. Maybe you read your, um, your footnote that's probably there. This place literally means the house of mercy. I want you to write that down. This is important. By the way, if you like uh, history and archaeology, uh, up until, I, I can't remember, the first, uh, maybe just 150 years ago or so, this place did not exist. There was no record that a place named Bethesda ever existed, and nobody could prove it was true. In fact, it was the opposite. Many people pointed to the fact that maybe the New Testament was just making some things up. Well, there's a church in this area of Jerusalem. It's called St. Anne's. It's a uh, French Catholic church, and it was built right around 1080 or 1100, and it's still there to this day. And uh, about 100 years ago, they needed some uh, updates to be done, and so they had to dig down into the foundation. And guess what they found? They found two pools side by side with a porch running down the middle and porches on all four sides. Is that interesting? It turns out that maybe the, the Bible has much more significant things to tell us than the world would like to admit. Okay, so here's Jesus is going to enter this place, the place that's called the house of mercy. Keep that in mind. And in these lay a multitude of invalids, the blind, lame, and the paralyzed. For an angel of the Lord went down at certain seasons into the pool and stirred the water. Whoever stepped in first after the stirring of the water was healed of whatever disease he had. I want to pause here for a second. Do you see those brackets around this verse? Uh, we were laughing before the service because I had to type this verse in. How many of you have a Bible open? How many of you are looking down and you're like, it goes from verse 3 to verse 5. There's no verse 4. Anybody? This is verse 4. It turns out it doesn't need to trip us up. It turns out that uh, after many of our, our Bibles were translated and published, that they found earlier documentation of the New Testament. And guess which verse was often not in there? This one. So uh, if you're looking at that and you're thinking, what's the deal with that? Here's, here's the idea. That at some point, somebody was preaching this, uh, this story to their congregation, and they probably thought, it needs a little note because people won't know what's the deal with the, the sheep gate and Bethesda and all this stuff. So they made themselves a note, and somebody probably copied it in as though it was the, the Bible. So there's many um, uh, translations that have gone back and just said, verse 4 is probably not an original verse. We'll just take it out. But how many of you are glad for the context anyways? Yeah. So here's the deal. There is this uh, legend, this spiritual legend, that if you are gathered around this pool, this, uh, this house of mercy, every now and then this bubbling up of the water would happen, as we know kind of a natural hot spring sometimes do. Well, the legend was what was happening was that there was angels or angelic beings, and they would stir up the water. And if you were the first person to touch the water once it was stirred up, you would be healed. So all these people have gathered around. They have this, this tunnel-like vision towards, I got to get healing. This is my last hope. And so they gather in this place, the house of mercy. But I would venture to guess that it probably felt more like a house of misery. Because it turns out that sometimes when we rally around things that are just blatantly made up and we put all our hope in them, you know that that hope becomes empty and, and vain. And these people are just clamoring. There's the sick and the blind. I, I would imagine people with leprosy and so many of these people that Jesus interacts with are all gathered there and they're just waiting and waiting, looking at the pool, waiting, waiting, waiting for the bubbling up to happen so that one of them can jump in and maybe, kind of, hopefully be healed. 
And verse 5 tells us one man was there who had been an invalid for 38 years. This man, unable to walk, is there, probably on the very end of his hope. I was thinking about that age 38. I know many of you are already 38. I am not. This person has struggled with this. We don't know if it was he was born with this condition or it developed or whatever it might be, but 38 years. I'm 35 years old. I can't imagine an entire lifespan of this. So he's unwell. And I was thinking about this verse because I I think this story as it unfolds is inviting us to consider a few things. How many of you um, would say that you've been guilty before as you read through the Bible of a couple things? Number one, you always put yourself in the, the, the shoes of the hero. You know what I'm talking about? We're never the Pharisees, you know that? We're going to talk about this in a second. But we never put ourselves in the story as the Pharisees. But I want you to, uh, for a moment, try your very best to put your, shoe, your, your feet in the shoes of this man. 38 years getting carried to and from this place. This place with a name, the house of mercy. How many of you in this condition would want mercy? You want that. And what is mercy? It's an extension of forgiveness or healing that someone doesn't deserve that somebody hasn't earned. And so I wrote this down. We get stuck spending our time living in misery all the while we're gathering under the roof of mercy. Let me tell you what I mean. So often we have these things in our lives that cause us misery and pain and brokenness. Maybe it's a relationship that you just wish, that you wish, that you wish, that you could shove aside and just forget about, but it just keeps bubbling back up. Maybe it's a pain or a trauma or a wound or something that just keeps on coming up. No matter what you do, it just keeps on coming up. And we gather in a place like a Bridge Community Church and we say, this place is called to be a house of mercy, but we bring that misery with us. I think in some regard that this morning's story is, what do we do with it? What is a good strategy? How do we begin to put things in motion to rid ourselves of that or ask God to take it from us. And so that's just for uh, food for thought. And as we move on to verse 6, I think it's going to kind of come alive a little bit more. When Jesus saw him lying there, and he knew that he had already been there a long time. Let's pause there for a second. He already knew he had been there a long time. If you're taking notes, I want you to know this. If you're carrying around misery, God knows. He already knows. He walks right in, he takes one look at this guy, and he already knows. So often we feel like we're we're suppressing it or we're hiding it or we, you know, go like this and then turn around with a smile and, yeah, everything's great, I'm doing great. It's so hard to hide these things from other humans. Imagine how hard it is to hide from God. You can't. He knows and he sees. And he acknowledges this man and he says this, do you want to be healed? I kept reading that this week, and I just thought, this is kind of a cruel question. Would you agree? It just seems kind of cruel. You've been laying here for 38 years. Do you really want to be healed? We have this phrase in our, our culture that all of you know. It's misery loves company. How many of you know that it's true in other people, but it's definitely not true of you? Yeah. Misery loves company. Here's the deal with this man and this condition and this place. 
There is an entire contingent of Jewish folks in the ancient world who feel compelled that part of their salvation that they're living out is that they have to give alms to the poor and the needy. It turns out that this place is a location that you could go if you feel guilty or you want to you know, massage your guilt away, that you could go and every day you could give some money to people. And so there's this camaraderie that I'm sure has grown around this place. And even though it's miserable and there's people on the brink of death and hopelessness and it's dark and every single day that's all you're seeing and you're just staring at the pool waiting and waiting and waiting for mercy all the while feeling misery, misery sometimes loves company, doesn't it? How many of you would openly admit that sometimes in your life you've had these moments where something really difficult and terrible has happened to you and you feel miserable and really what you want is you want to call up somebody that's like, yeah, that is miserable. Me too. I feel it too. We can all relate. Now here's what I want to tell you. I think that there's a, a moment in the process of grief and dealing with these things that we just come to grips and we sit in our misery for a little while. But it's important that it's for a little while. Because sometimes that can become our entire identity. That becomes who we are. I am fill in the blank. I am addiction. I am trauma. I am a terrible event that happened to me. I am this. I am that. And it becomes who we are. And when that becomes who we are and we're telling ourselves that over and over, it becomes awfully difficult to hear the voice of the one that says, you are a child of God. That's actually who you are. And so I think Jesus is asking a very legitimate question. You're here for healing, but you've been here 38 years and it hasn't happened. Do you really want that? Do you really want to walk into a condition where maybe some of this camaraderie and some of the expectation and the knowing what's going to come might end for you? And in verse 7, this is what the man says. He says, the sick man answered him, Sir, I have no one to put me in the pool when the water is all stirred up. And while I'm going, another always steps down before me. This is what he's saying. He's saying, I got my laser-like focus on the pool. And when it bubbles up, a little tiny bit of hope rises up in me. But I'm so dependent on others, I don't have somebody to lift me up and put me in. And so even in my state, giving it all my strength to try to get there, someone always cuts in line. Anybody ever feel like people are always cutting in line, the healing for you? Like, where's, when's my turn? I've been here longer. When's my turn? I think if we're honest, we've all experienced that. We've all experienced it. And then we feel the inverse of like the guilt of like, oh, I don't want to feel that way. I want to celebrate the joy of someone else. But like, I, when is my turn? And this is what this man is feeling. He's saying, I have an utter dependence on someone else and there's nobody willing to help me. I keep getting cut in the line. So Jesus said to him, Get up, take your bed, and walk. And at once the man was healed, and he took up his bed, and he walked. I want to point out a, a couple things that maybe when we jump to this miracle, we overlook. Have you noticed the man has no name and no description other than his condition? Have you noticed that he has not made a proclamation of his faith or confessed who he believes Jesus to be? This is a pure, as scholars say, a pure, merciful healing. Jesus goes in, he picks a man, and he heals him, not because of what the man has said or done or what he believes. Jesus, just being the eternal God, puts on display what it looks like to, to have divine mercy, and he extends it to this man. He just heals him. Get up, take your bed, and walk. 
The second thing I want to point out to you is, have you noticed that when Jesus goes from town to town, what happens to him every time he shows his face? People start to gather. People start to chatter. And then what happens? More people start to gather. And before you know it, Jesus is like, oh, i got to feed 5,000 people. You know what I'm talking about? You notice the absence of that here? Jesus walks into a place where everybody wants to be healed, and there's no mention of the clamor, people yelling, heal me, heal me. This is what Charles Spurgeon says is the reason for that. I, I put it on a slide. It says, a blindness had come over these people at the pool. There they were, and there was Christ who could heal them, but not a single one of them sought after him. Why? It's because their eyes were fixed on the water, expecting it to be troubled. That's just a way of saying it would be like jumbled up. They were so taken up with their own chosen way that the true way was right in front of them and left neglected. Here's what I want to tell you. Sometimes the world has sold us tunnel vision into what the solution to our problems is. Uh, sometimes it's as simple as some people go for the infomercial that with four easy payments of $29.99, I'll solve all of your problems, right? A step up from that would be, uh, hey, you could read this book, 10 Easy Steps for Dummies to solve this problem or that problem. These people have tunnel-like vision on that water. They are so committed to the water is the solution. That's how I receive my healing, that Jesus walks in their midst. The guy who legitimately will redeem this place that is actually a house of misery, he's actually the one who makes it a house of mercy, and still none of them seem to notice. So this is what I want to tell you. Maybe you're waiting Maybe you feel like there's healing. Maybe it's physical. Maybe it's emotional. Maybe it's relational. And you're thinking, I know the solution. I've been lasered on the solution. I want to tell you that the solution should always start with recognizing Jesus. I am not telling you that Jesus is going to solve all your problems. Maybe that as you pursue Jesus, Jesus begins to put some things in motion and says, hey, I want to lead you to a really good therapist that could help you with that. Or I want to lead you to a really good doctor who could help you with that. But what I do want you to know is that sometimes when we bypass Jesus and we're dead set on this is going to be the solution to all of our problems, guess what happens? More problems. There's a lot of nodding heads quietly that I think a lot of people in their mind are thinking of how that's worked out for you. So here's the conclusion I, I've come up with. I, I was thinking of this phrase that we have, misery loves company, I was talking, I was thinking it through over and over this week, and I was reminded of um, one of the most powerful voices uh, of an entire generation. Whether we like it or not, it's just true. It's um, Paul Simon. You guys know Paul Simon? Some of you are saying, like, yeah, like you're not supposed to like him. I grew up listening to Paul Simon, but he has a very famous song, and how does his song begin? Hello, darkness, my old friend. I've come to talk to you again. Many of you know the words. And I was thinking about this idea that if we're not careful, the identity uh, of our brokenness and our hurt can become who we are. It's not just something we experience. It becomes who we are. And when that happens, we often are very susceptible to accepting the world's solutions to our problems. So here's just a, a statement that I came up with and I wrote for myself and I just thought maybe I should share it with you. This is in my notes as I was preparing to preach. Mine says sometimes I carry my own mat and sometimes my mat carries me. I just changed the pronoun for you. 
Sometimes we carry our mats, and sometimes our mats carry us. You know, so often we talk about these things, and we talk about it as like an either-or. You're either carrying your mat or you're laying on it. But in reality, I think every one of us has these moments in time where we're guilty of kind of doing both, sometimes in the same day. Sometimes we're the all-conquering hero that my problems can't get a hold of me, and then by the end of the day, it's the misery of like, man, I am my problem. This is what I want to tell you. Begin with Jesus. He's already looking at you. He already knows, and he's just inviting you to stop looking at the pool and look to him, and he will lead you from there. So often we want to know, like, but what's, point, what, what's step two and three and four and five and six? Why don't we just start with step one? and ask God to reveal himself. Maybe he's going to connect you with people that are going to connect the dots for you. But let's start with Jesus. That's what we are called to do. Verse 9 says it was the Sabbath. Everybody say, dun, dun, dun. It was the Sabbath. Say it again so I can drink a sip of water. So the Jews said to the man who had been healed, because it's the Sabbath, They see the man who's been healed and they say, it is the Sabbath and it is not lawful to take up your bed. But he answered me, it's not my fault. The man who healed me, he said to take up my bed and walk. And they asked him, who is the man who said, take up your bed and walk? Who told you this? Now the man who had been healed did not know who it was. For Jesus had withdrawn as there was a crowd in the place. Here's the general idea. This guy suffering for 38 years. He gets healed, and guess what? He doesn't even bother to ask Jesus. Like, you got a business card so I can follow up later? You got an email address I could reach out to you? Like, I'm sure I'm going to have more questions. Nothing. He doesn't even know who it is, doesn't even know the name. Is this not a little bit, like, shaky ground for you to think? Jesus walks in, heals a guy, and the guy is so, like, kind of distant from who Jesus is, he doesn't even know his name. He gets questioned by people, who did this? And he's like, I don't know. As far as he knows, a random stranger walked into the pool, healed him, and left. Is that weird for your conception of who Jesus is? Yeah. So they they pin him down. Now I want you to recognize this. There is a deep callousness. Do you see it? You have been suffering in misery for 38 years, and now you're not. Don't you know that's against the law? That's what they say. There's a deep, deep callousness. How many of you would say, like, at least they could be like, tell me more, right? I think that's like bare minimum. Or like, what on earth happened? This is amazing. Tell me the whole story. But no. These people are gathered together. And remember, it is a festival. And what's at stake at the festival? We got to dot our I's and cross our T's because the big wigs are watching. Corporate is here, right? I'm going to be a rule follower to a T because I don't want anyone to see that I might slip up or have a little bit of like, meh. By the way, there's a deep irony. I didn't come up with this. I read it in a commentary. This man had to be carried to and from the pool each day. Somebody carried this man on the Sabbath, and they don't seem overly concerned about that. Now, do they? Do you want to know why? This is just my interpretation. The reason they don't mind somebody picking up this guy to the pool and putting him down is because that guy does not challenge their authority or their power at all. That guy is not a threat to them. But if there is somebody wandering through Israel and the surrounding areas that somehow has the power to heal a man who has been sick and broken for 38 years, that poses a challenge to my power 
and authority. And so they begin to push on him, don't you know that's illegal on the Sabbath? You're not supposed to do that on the Sabbath. Now here's where they're at. They're at the point where the rules and the laws have become more important than mercy. I want you to see that. The story is about laws and mercy. And these people are on the side of the legality of the situation is much more significant than somebody showed mercy to another human being. I read a, a story. Um, I don't know if it was like um, um, I don't know, apocryphal or what, but it came from a, an old Jewish commentary, and it, it said this, because where Jews ended up landing was, if it saves human life, you can do it. And the reason for that is they had this story that uh, there was a person whose house was burning down and they rushed out to consult the rabbi whether, whether it would be okay on the Sabbath for them to put the fire out. And after he gathered other rabbis and they consulted together and they determined, yeah, it, it would be appropriate for you to put the, the fire out, they went back and the entire block was burned to the ground. Because that is how important following the law was for these people. So this is where I, I've landed a little bit. I had um, this moment in the last couple weeks where I think God presented me with something I had been reading, which was John chapter 5. And it was, are you going to miss what God is doing by being so caught up in the rules of what's acceptable in polite Christian company? How many of you have experienced where you feel like this little tinge of like, ugh, I'll give you a really sharp example that's happened lots of times. Maybe you're in Christian company and some friends are there and somebody drops the ready for this, the F-bomb. And everyone you can just see is like, recoil, right? Because it, it hits you and you're like, oh no. And I'm not here to say that you should talk like that. That's not what I'm saying at all. I'm saying that sometimes when those sorts of things begin to happen, what happens is we get laser-like focus on it and we miss that God is doing something really large. So let me tell you a story. If we could take this slide down, we'll get to it in a second. I was talking to a, a young man a, a couple weeks ago, and uh, we were chatting, having coffee. And I was telling him about some of the things I had been reading and learning and excited about being here and all this stuff, and he interrupted me and he said, you know, Andy, I, I don't know that I believe that stuff. And he began to tell me some of the things he wasn't so sure about the Bible and his faith that I, I thought maybe he had had. He said, I don't know if I believe that stuff. And in me was the recoil. And I began thinking very quickly of all the apologetics from seminary and all the things I could tell him to reverse course. But I felt God say, stop. Just listen. So I kept listening. And this person told me, you know what, if I'm really honest, I don't know if God is even real. And again, Oh, man, let me tell him all the ways that I could, I could tell him that God is real, God is real. I could tell you examples, but I felt like God say, pause and listen. And this young man told me, you know what, I, I've thought this way for about 10 years. It's been very difficult for me to be honest with people. But I, I do want to tell you that um, for the first time in a decade, I opened my Bible a few days ago, and I, it's just like really making me curious. I want to keep reading it. And I felt like, ding, ding, ding. Do you know that that would have never happened had I jumped in there and tried to correct? And I'm not, listen, I am not trying to tell you, you should follow my example. I blow this all the time. But what I am saying is, uh, we can put up the slide. 
We often have trouble marveling at what God is doing because we're stuck in our desire to keep the rules or, or keep the order or say the right thing, and we get so stuck in it, we forget that God is doing something. And if you're like, how does that work? God could walk into a, a pool of people who don't even know who he is and don't care and heal somebody. He could do that. And you could say, well, he's not, even, uh, he's not even a real Christian all the way. He doesn't believe the right things. He doesn't even know who Jesus is. And then we miss the marvel of what God is capable of doing. God is at work in places that we can't even imagine, and he's inviting us to say, like, God, help me see. We pray this prayer. Let me see with your eyes. What does that mean? Sometimes there's these little glimmers of light coming through cracks in very dark places, and we totally miss it because we don't even bother to look there. I think God is inviting us to look there. Let me flip the page here. If you didn't know, I've been roasted a few times that I haven't switched to iPad. I'm still very much analog on printed paper. But, um, so sometimes my fingers don't flip the page. But I did it. John, chapter 5, verse 14. Here we are. After all of this questioning with the Pharisees, it says, Afterward, Jesus went and found the man in the temple. I love that. Hey, uh, remember that little uh, interaction we had back there? I didn't catch your name. <laughs> So I thought I'd come introduce myself at the temple. A couple things just to, to note that I think are cool. This man gets healed, and where does he go? To the temple. Now, if you know anything about Judaism, you know that in his previous condition, he's not welcome at the temple. But now he is. So he's got this healing, and he's exercising his healing in a way that's kind of, kind of cool. He's going to seek out camaraderie and family and worship and the, all the, the stuff that happens at the temple. He's living into being a, a person without this condition anymore. But Jesus says, see, you're well. Look at you. You're doing great. Sin no more that nothing worse may happen to you. Whoa. So the man went away and told the Jews who it was. It was Jesus. Whoa, that's a curveball. Again, this story in so many ways just breaks the pattern of what we're expecting because we've read and heard so many of these stories, and this story is not those stories. So let's break it down. This is what I would venture to you. Sometimes we think of mercy and we think Jesus showed that man mercy at the pool. Would you agree? I want to tell you that I believe the mercy he showed him at the pool was incomplete. And the reason Jesus sought him out in the temple is because the fullness of mercy looks like I met your physical condition, but there's one piece still missing. And that's a very sharp, hard-to-hear warning. You, you know why it's, it's hard to hear? Because it's not nice. You guys know that we're living in the nice culture? Don't say it. It's not nice. So what does he say? Sin no more that nothing worse may happen to you. Now, on first blush, this might appear that what Jesus is saying is somehow your sin is the reason that you were paralyzed. I want to tell you I couldn't be further from that. That's not what I think Jesus is saying. I think what Jesus is saying is you could live your whole life able-bodied and running around and, and making friendships and being mean, meaningful in every way, but if you let sin into your life, that would be a greater disability than anything you ever imagined laying by that pool for 38 years. And the end result of that would be eternal separation for me. That would be way worse than 38 years by a pool. So what is the mercy? I've met your physical need. Now I want to tell you with a warning. 
Go and sin no more. Sin will wreak havoc on you. It will ruin your life far beyond what you've already experienced. It doesn't tell us what the man said. It doesn't tell us if he even spoke back. But it sure seems like a pretty quick encounter. How many of you just feel like, man, that feels gross to me? It feels like taking advantage of like this merciful Jesus and then just like bailing. It's like a hit and run miracle. The man went away, and what does he do? He tells the Jews, I know who it was now. It was Jesus. That's who did it. So what does he do? He ratted him out. That's what he did. And I don't know what to do with it. That's my honest opinion. You think everything in the story is pointing towards Jesus is giving mercy, giving mercy, giving mercy, and you feel like as a human there is some response to mercy that you should at least be nice. But he doesn't do that. And I was thinking about it this morning. I actually texted around and said, hey, if you need me, I'm going to be in the office. Because I just felt like God was saying, there's something here that uh, I want to show you, but like, it's not in your outline yet. <laughs> so uh, sometimes God likes to change things last minute. How many of you love when God does that? There's an old saying, I won't tell you what denomination it is, but it's, um, we would love for God's spirit to move upon us, but he needs to do it by Thursday when the outlines are due for print. We don't want to be those people, do we? This is what I, I feel like, uh, as I was reading, I felt like was coming to my mind. I am so guilty of this. This idea that I have people in my life that I want to know God, and I come to this conclusion, God, if they just saw your miraculous power, they would believe. If you just did something amazing, if you just broke into their life and did something incredible, they would believe. So do that. And the reason I, I feel like it, it was hard for me in this section is I realized what, what I think John is telling us is that's not always true, is it? There are people who could not only see the miracle, they could experience the miracle. And if we're kind of lining up miracles, I'd say this is a pretty big one, wouldn't you? He experienced that he's on his own two feet in the temple. And does he believe? If he does, he doesn't at this point. Maybe he comes around, I don't know. But he doesn't. And so often, that's what we want people to know. We want them to know. But I would venture that maybe a better path is we want people to know the truth of who God is and who he says you are. That faith is something so deep between God and a person that we can't, we can't force it upon somebody. We can't wish it upon somebody. It's something that is so deep into who they are when they come to the realization of I'm made in his image. He made me. He loves me. I'm a son. I'm a daughter. So I think it's something that we should all maybe write down and consider. Okay, let's head for the finish line. Verse 16. And this was why the Jews were persecuting Jesus. Because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them, My father is working until now, and I am working. This was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him. Because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. Do you know what the final tactic is when you're a person of great, great power and influence and somebody is just a burr in your saddle? Killing them. It's true. You know, I, um, I was thinking about this this week and I was reminded of a, a quote of a journalist that I had written down in, um, in my notebook. Um, 
I won't tell you who it was because it's kind of a sketchy figure. But this person uh, was talking about politicians during election season. How many of you know that elections during pol uh, uh, politicians during election season is like the epitome of like the pursuit of power and authority? You know what I'm talking about? They will say and do anything. And I'm not talking right or left. I'm talking everyone. Here come all the promises, right? A million dollars right into your bank account every month if you vote for me. Like, all comes out. And he compared them to, are you ready for this? Elk. You know, the big deer. Nobody, nobody gets it yet, so let me push further. He said this. There's about 340, 350 days a year where you couldn't come close to an elk if you wanted to. You could do everything in your power and you couldn't get anywhere near one. The wind shifts and the thing takes off. It's a thing of immense grace and power and speed. You could see one in your binoculars and just start heading that direction. It could hear you break a twig from thousands of yards away, gone like a ghost. But he said there are two or three weeks a year where that elk has one thing on its mind. It's reproducing. It's called the rut. And he said in that season, this thing will come charging through the woods full speed. It'll run you over on its way to get what it wants. So much so it will literally rip fur and flesh off of its own body in bushes to get what it wants. And I was thinking about this that, this week because that's what the Pharisees have become. They want to get what they want. And what they want is absolute power and authority. And for anyone to step in and say, mercy is bigger than your ability to enforce the rules on the Sabbath, that is tunnel vision on we got to eliminate this guy because there's one thing we've set our mind to and he stands in the way of it. So it says that they start by saying, we're going to persecute him because he's doing these crazy things on the Sabbath. But then he makes this claim. This is uh, verse 17. My father is working until now and I am working. Also, by the way, I feel like that illustration would land much better in hunting territory. I thought it was cool. You guys clearly did not. I know there's at least one person who shoots elk in here, so maybe I'll go hang out with him after. <laughs> My father is working until now, and I am working. Now, I, I was reading this week, and I, I got to tell you, I was so, uh, so not in the know. I had no idea what this verse was saying. And I started uh, doing some reading, and I realized, man, there's just so many simple things to learn in the Bible that you just, just don't know. So here's the idea. When Jesus is walking the earth, there is a debate going on in Judaism, and the Pharisees are starting to win the debate. And the debate goes like this. Do you remember when uh, God created all the heavens and the earth, and there was seven days of creation? You guys remember that? On the seventh day, God rested. Well, there was this debate going on. Well, if God rested then and God's character doesn't change, then guess what? God is taking a perpetual Sabbath every seventh day, and he's Sabbathing with his people. One of the reasons why we don't do work is because God isn't working either. So this idea is that God is also slumbering on this day. Does that make sense? So there's this debate going on. Is, is God doing this? And the Pharisees were beginning to win. And this is what Jesus says. My father is working until now. So what is he saying? My father works on the Sabbath. So why do they want to persecute him? Because he's saying, you're wrong. The thing you're teaching all the people, incorrect, wrong. And then he says, and I am working. He's saying, I am an extension of the work of the Father. And what is the work of the Father? It's to bring about the kingdom of God on earth as it is in heaven. And Jesus says, mercy is part of breaking in the kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. Does God want us to rest? Yes. Does God want us to Sabbath? Yes. 
Does God want us to do that to the extent that we would refuse mercy that we could give to another human being made in his image who's been suffering because it's my rest day? No, that's what Jesus is saying. And then he says that I and my father are both working. So they pick up on, I think he's claiming that he is equal with God the Father. We've got to kill him. I was reading about this idea about Sabbath and God continuing to Sabbath, and I came across this quote. This is from Philo, or Philo, some people say. He's actually a Jewish philosopher, and he's on the other side of the debate. And this is how he debated. I love this. God is deterred by no Sabbath, a.k.a. Sabbath doesn't prevent him from acting. Why? For as it is the property of fire to burn, it is the nature of God to be at work. How cool is that? And it's circa 35 AD, which sets up a timeline. Very interesting, doesn't it? So this debate is raging on. So it is God's property. It's who God is. It's in his character to work, to to bring about the fulfillment of the kingdom of God on earth. And he's calling all of us to participate in it. Is he calling us to rest? Yes. Is he calling us to rest at the expense of bringing about mercy and forgiveness and healing in the ways that we have control over? No. So I was thinking about this, and I was thinking, man, those Pharisees, they're always so dumb, and they're so wrong all the time. I love when Jesus corrects them. Amen? Just kidding. kidding. Because I was thinking of my own words, and I, I was challenged to do this a long time ago, and I've tried to do this all the time. Every time I preach and there's Pharisees in the mix, we should ask ourselves this question, because the Bible is inviting us to see the Pharisees in ourselves. And sometimes that's a really painful thing that we don't want to turn to our neighbor and uh, admit because it might look bad. But the truth is, is that the Pharisees have little elements of their character that are still alive in us today. By the way, if we're always Jesus in the story and we always get it, we totally miss the point because at the end, how many people show up for him? The point is, you're not the person who would have shown up. And that's a devastating thing for us to hear, but it's something that we have to come to grips with and we have to recognize what is preventing us. And here's what I I was thinking about this week. The Pharisees had this deep-seated idea that God was resting on the Sabbath. He wasn't at work. And I was thinking, what does that mean to me in reality? Because I think up here in my head, I would never get caught dead telling you that God sometimes pauses to work and he's not acting. But then if you think about your heart, the way that you live your life, I I started to think, are there ways that you live your life where you're living in such a way that it's maybe telling you that deep down you believe sometimes God is not at work? Do you know what I'm saying here? I was thinking about this Sabbath idea. And I was thinking, I'm shaped by a certain culture. If you've been coming on Wednesdays, we've been talking a lot about this. We're the fast food drive-through people. We're the the people who are setting up drones to deliver Amazon packages because overnight or same day is not fast enough for us, right? And so we got to come to grips with we want things. We want it now. We want it exactly how we want it. That's how we're shaped. And so when God acts in a timing that is not our timing, sometimes I, I made a slide for this. Sometimes we act, that's important, we act like we believe that God is asleep at the wheel. And our impatience leads us to act on our own timing. How many of you have ever thought, like, I've been praying, praying, praying for like 15 minutes. I haven't got the answer, so I'm moving forward with this one. Okay, leave your hand up if that ended well. 
Yeah. So sometimes in practicality, we live out our life and we act as though God's asleep at the wheel. Of course, I believe he's all powerful and he's up there. It must be the Sabbath. He's not working. He's not doing anything today. Therefore, I better get out a piece of paper and write down all my pros and cons. And I'm just going to make a decision on my own. Now, I want to tell you that there are certain decisions where maybe you'll get away with that for a time. Maybe it won't be the most ideal outcome, but it won't crash and burn in a way that's saying like, red alert, don't do that again. And so we get lulled into thinking, well, I'm a, a pretty well-to-do, I'm an intelligent person, I can make up these things. But we act in a way, we bypass God's plan for us, we make a shortcut, and we miss out on what God actually had for us all along. And if you've been following God for any length of time, when those things come, they're very humbling. Because you find out that what God had for you all along is better than anything you could have done on your own. So I want to encourage you in that way. For the sake of time, I, I want to wrap up. I think there's been a, a lot of things to, to chew on and think about. But I want to invite you just kind of like in unity, if you're able, just to, to stand together this morning. If you would, we, uh, we have a tradition here. We just kind of open our hands. It's not like a ritual or anything weird. It's just saying like, God, if you have something that you want to hand over to me to walk into my day with, I'm just going to open a posture that says, I'll, I'll receive it. And I want to uh, pray with, for you, and then I want to encourage you as we, um, as we dismiss. God, thank you for your word. God, thank you that it's exactly what it says it is. It's a light and a lamp unto our feet. It shows us the way. And God, thank you that it's a sword, that sometimes it pierces us in a way that hurts, it convicts our hearts, and we don't want to turn from that either. So God, as we push into your word, as we dismiss from this place, I, I ask that um, whatever uh, people just need in their heart, it would linger about them this week, that, that maybe you would reveal things, bring things uh, to light, maybe memories or, or thoughts or phrases that would carry them this week. And God, I pray that Sunday would be a great time where we rally around your word, but it would not be the only time. Would you help us to remember that we can pursue you all day, every day. We can pull out a Bible at a lunch break. We can do it early in the morning. We can uh, seek first your kingdom. So God, we love you. We ask that you would go before us. We ask that you would encourage us. You would convict us. You would make us think deeply. You would give us opportunities to be in relationship and, and conversations that matter this week. And God, would we be found faithful? Would we be people who are honest with ourselves, quick to confess our sins, and quick to say thank you for the, the beautiful mercy that you've given to us? So thank you, God, today, that in so many ways, that even in our misery, that you have made our lives houses of mercy. So we lean in that today. Amen. Amen. Hey, I want to encourage you as we wrap up. You're dismissed if you need to, but if you'd like to linger, that's one of the greatest things about this church. I just encourage you, turn to your friends, get in a good conversation. We'll turn some music on. This is uh, an extension of our worship is just to be together. So blessings and have a great Sunday.